Welcome to another episode of Mission Daily. Today, we have Michael Weistrack, uh, the CEO of Freshly, joining us today. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So for those who don't know, can you t- describe and tell our audience what is Freshly and what do you guys do? Freshly's healthy, ready-made meals we ship right to your house. So think of that as the easiest way to eat healthy. It's It's having a personal nutritionist and a personal chef who lives inside of your refrigerator, does all the stuff for you. And then all you have to do is just heat up a meal. Uh, it takes about three minutes to heat up and you're having a gourmet, delicious meal uh, for starting at about eight ninety nine a meal, no delivery fee, no tipping, no tax, just fully delivered to your house. And this is very different, again, from the other meal kits where I have to do all the cooking, right? This is this is ready to go. Is that what you're saying? I started the company really to solve my problem. Is and, and I, like a lot of people, I'm not a big fan of cooking. And if I am <laughs> cooking, uh, I want it to be enjoyable, right? So, I, so I, I think of cooking for me as an experience. I love barbecuing. I'm not a... But the reality is in my, my day, I just don't have a lot of time to, you know, barbecue and do those things. I get to do those things once every week, two weeks. So Freshly is for those people who just need help getting through the week. They want to eat great tasting, healthy meals uh, that are affordable. And I think there's, there's lots of options that are, are quick, convenient, but they're unhealthy or they cost a lot, whether you're using the delivery. Um, there's options like the meal kit guys who do a great job of what they're doing, but it, it requires anywhere from an hour to hour and a half to cook those meals. And, and that's just, that's something that, you know, I personally didn't have, uh, but I still wanted to eat that healthy home cooked meal that was fresh, that wasn't loaded with preservatives and a bunch of junk. Uh, I just wanted someone else to do the work for me. Your, your background's pretty interesting. So before I want to talk about that a little bit before we start, get to fresh things that it kind of led up to it. So your background's fascinating because you were in all types of different businesses. Uh, it sounds like you were a partner in real estate companies that were developing uh, residential properties near the University of Arizona. You actually worked at a company that sounds like that you guys were in like, a, I would call it like franchises where you guys were operating gas stations, hotels, uh, Carl's Jr., Starbucks, and you also owned a restaurant outright. So you've always kind of owned these independent businesses. What brought you to say, okay, I want to do Freshly? And you kind of mentioned it a little bit, like you were working such long days, you couldn't cook, but what gave you that like that idea that this is going to work better than the other things you were successfully operating? I think, first of all, I started off, I, my parents bought our first restaurant when I was a month old. So I grew up in an entrepreneur-based family uh, and always connected with food in some aspects. Uh, we've independently had restaurants from steak restaurants to delis. Uh, we've operated Quiznos. Uh, so I kind of grew up in really uh, almost every aspect of food you can do. Never thought that was going to be my career. I actually, out of college, went into investment banking but then really decided I wanted to get back in entrepreneurial. And as you said, I, I did a lot of different things in the entrepreneurial space uh, from real estate development to uh, owning and operating different businesses. And, and one of those happened to be a restaurant. Uh, and when I started Freshly, I really wasn't started. It wasn't called Freshly. It was an idea to solve my problem. Um, it wasn't an idea to start a company. It was to start eating healthier. I turned 30. I, I found that the, the, uh, two-a-day pizza diet was not the best diet for me <laughs> at that stage. I moved from New York where I literally had never turned on my oven. I, I literally lived in New York for three years and never turned on my oven. I just, I, I'm not a cooker. Uh, but I got that I should be cooking because I knew that it was healthier. I knew that um, it was more co- you know, cost affordable. So uh, what I ended up doing is just solving my own problem with working with a close family friend who is a 
ER doctor by training, but got really passionate about health and wellness and how diet can really, really functionally change a lot of people's lives. Like not only from you know your health and weight, but from your emotions, how well you sleep, all those things. And like I said, I'd had a restaurant. So I had chefs there and I, I basically went to my family friend and I said, draw me up a menu of things that I should be eating. Um, and I'm going to hand that off to my chefs and they're going to just put it into go cook to go containers. And I'm just going to heat it up through the week and eat that. And fast forward 90 days, I'm in the best shape of my life. I feel great. I'm sleeping great. My energy levels are awesome. Um, and people notice that and people start saying, Hey, what are you doing? And I tell them, Oh, I'm just having my chefs cook food. And so people said, Hey, would you do it for me? Uh, I'll pay you. I desperately need this. Um, and, and that was where that kind of aha moment hit. But you know, really the, the first, you know, few months of me doing it was just for me. And it was an amazing opportunity for me because I never had to worry about calories or any of those things. Someone else was doing it. Um, that's, that's how the idea started. And that's really how the business started. I mean, I think most people are like that, right? They will eat just whatever's in front of them. Like if you put the bigger the portion is, like they'll just consume more. And, and you solve that problem, which is if you already have it con- controlled, then there you go. Yeah, I think, I mean, the big part about eating healthy is all the work that you have to put into it, right? So it's, right. it's, it's, it's either you're going to have to put in that work on cooking the food, you're going to have to put in the work and going and making the proper decisions. Uh, what I found for myself is that given, given a decision of going and getting a salad or a burger, I get the burger, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. given, given the decision of, um, you know, of cooking or not cooking, I tend not to cook because I'm tired at the end of the day, like all of us, I work long hours and I just didn't, wasn't excited about coming home and cooking. So this, this really left the decision process and made it easier for me. And then I came home and all the easiest thing for me to do easier than going out, easier than ordering pizza, the absolute easiest thing to do was just heat the food up that I had in, um, in my refrigerator. And then it tasted great. So I didn't feel like I was losing out. And I'd always kind of been this, you know, believer, you know, I was, I trained like so many people is like, oh, in order to eat healthy, you have to eat like very little food that's not satiating and filling. Um, and I realized that's not the case. It's, it's really about getting the proper uh, ingredients, the proper quality of ingredients, you know, taking those in proportion. And, and for me, it was, it was kind of like this amazing aha moment because I got all the benefits of having someone else do it for me. And it was kind of, you know, for me, it was like health in a box. So let's fast forward then. So now you know that you, you're doing it for yourself. Things are working out. People are asking you, hey, I want to have the same meal plan. What was those first days where of the early formation and freshly like, was, did, did you start with like actually just accepting that money from people where it was like, okay, pay me and then I'll, I'll make it for you. Is yeah, that how it went? That was <laughs> it. I think I mean, what, what you looked at and I think to degree today is there's never been, I mean, freshly is, is, is not an X of something. There's no roadmap. So we were inventing it while we were going on. And, and a lot of that was saying yes, a lot, probably too often in the early days and that we, you know, can you deliver to me? Yes. Like it was, it was, can you, you know, our first, we started shipping food cause we had cut, cut people in California contact us and say, we, we want to buy, can you? And it was just like, yes. And then, and we figured that there was always like, uh, there was always a way to figure something out. Um, and I think that's been crucial to Freshly's success is that we've never let, um, a challenge get in our way. It's, it's always been, you know, we don't look at challenges. We look at opportunities and, and that's really how we focus. But it was saying yes to a lot of things um, and kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And, and then eventually we, we realized that we were saying yes to too many things and we had to start saying no and really focus on, on, you know, delivering execution of what we were, you know, making that product great. And that did mean that we had to tell some people, Hey, you know, we can't solve that problem. We're sorry. Uh, maybe someday, but not now. 
So at what point did you feel like uh, this was going to be its own business? I guess, you know, you're starting to accept some money. It sounds like you got some people asking you for deliveries, like at what volume or what was the, what were the numbers like when you were like, okay, I think I want to go full time. This is it. This, this is the, this is the opportunity. Well, we knew, so we were doing it in our restaurant and um, it, over the course of about three months, we'd scaled to where that business was now bigger than the restaurant. The restaurant wow. couldn't handle that business. <laughs> three months. Um, yeah, that's, and, and that's fast. So we had to make a decision there and, and the restaurant like was really not set up to do what we were doing. So there was a lot of inefficiencies there. You know, it was, uh, you know, and, and like so many startups is less than clear if this is going to be a, a big business, a massive business, how big this is going to be. But we had to take a leap of faith and we got really lucky on finding a facility that was built specifically for this uh, kind of use case and, and at smaller volumes, much smaller than where we're at today, but much larger volumes than where we were at the time. And we took, we took a big leap of faith and it was a scary one because we had, I think at the time we had, you know, 10,000 in the bank and, and our rent payment on this new place was 9,000 a month. So <laughs> it was, it was one of those things that like, there was no slippage, there was no room for, for error in that process. So one of the things that I feel like you were, you were uniquely prepared to do this is of course, the fact that you've operated within restaurants, restaurants are notorious for having razor thin margins. How did that influence, I guess, your decision-making going into this? Like, I mean, it had to have helped you quite a bit because, uh, you know, a lot of the meal delivery services that have gone public that have, you know, been scrutinized is because of that. They just can't keep their cost of their customer acquisition costs are just so high. Their margins are so thin. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. How did that knowledge help you? Yeah. So I think, I think first and foremost, it's, you know, they, they, there's an old saying, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And I think, you know, at the time we would have loved to have VC funding. We would have loved to have someone write us a few million dollar check. That just wasn't an option in Phoenix, Arizona. There weren't a lot of VCs and there weren't VCs investing in our category from our back, from what we were doing. It took us, you know, three years of bootstrapping. And that means, you know, it's the old way of building a business, which is you had to actually make money to pay for it, right? There was no, <laughs> there was no negative burn because we didn't. There was no bank account there, so we had to we had to literally build the business. So that makes you a very good operator. And what you realize is like margins are hard come by, and I don't care what the business is, I don't care whatever you're doing in any degree of manufacturing. Margins are all about execution, and they're all about discipline and focus and getting better and and getting very, very incrementally better, but week on week on week. And we, we built that discipline. We built that discipline from the ground up, you know, because we were so thin, you know, me and my co-founder were working 14, 15 hour days and we were doing a lot of the work. Um, so we did every single role in this company before we hired someone else. Uh, and that gave us a lot of discipline on just how we, what the expectations were running different portions of the business. And, and we also then knew, you know, to hire smart people and, and how those smart people were going to come in. So by the time we did actually VC funding, we were a very disciplined organization. And we were an organization who really valued every nickel that went through the, the, the plan. And, and that, that is, has been why we've been so successful is that has been the mindset of the ethos of Freshly from day one. And, and that's allowed us in a very, you know, uh, food is always a, a tight margin, tough business. But, um, you know, we've absolutely executed and operated better than anyone else in class. What was your pitch to the VCs at the time? Uh, because, you know, like you said before, you're, you're in the black, you're making money, you're razor margin company. What was your vision that you shared with them that uh, maybe no one else knew? I think they, they were excited by our team. They were excited by me, my co-founder. Um, I think second of that is the, 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 the size of the market. So the, our general thesis has been and remains. And, and if you look at the facts and if you look at the information, since 1950, uh, food that's cooked in home has declined every single year. Um, the wow. reason in 1950... 
<laughs> well, it, it makes sense. In 1950, what happened is World War II is, is for the first time ever in, in major scale, mom left home to go join the workforce. When uh, soldiers came back from World War II, my mom stayed in the workforce. And, and since, that, since that inflection point, uh, more and more years you have dual income families. And, and the reality is, is a, as a dual income family is you come home and it's six o'clock, seven o'clock at night. And, and the last thing e- either person wants to do is two, three hours of chores, right? And, and so those household duties have, have fundamentally changed. And, and we see that changing and we see that, I see that evolving. And, you know, I grew up in, with my parents and my mom was a, a stay-at-home mom and, and she, we cooked in the house six out of seven dinners a week. And one, one day a week we'd go out to eat. Well, I look at my, how, you know, I raise, I'm raising my kid and how my sisters are raising theirs. And, and it's the inverse. They're, they're lucky if they're cooking one time a week in the house. And that's because they're all dual income families. Everyone's busy. Um, life's chaotic and it's changing. And I think when, our big fundamental belief is that cooking is becoming much more of an experience. It's becoming more experiential. I think you see this from cooking networks and all these different cook shows and, and all these things is that people really enjoy cooking and they always should. It's an amazing experience. It's a, it's an amazing, you know, amazing way to connect to something uh, that's great. Uh, the reality is, is we're going to consume 21 meals in a week, right? On average. Um, and, and less and less of us want to cook all 21. We want to cook two or three of those meals and we want to really enjoy that cooking experience but the other ones we want to get somewhere else. Um, so that's a big underlying thesis of ours. And, and our, our second thesis is that consumers are starting to, and they will continue to demand food companies to take a fiduciary responsibility on health. And for a long time, we have not trusted big food. We thought big food was out there. You know, we, we held big food close to how we, how we hold big tobacco, right? Not with, a, not with the, the highest uh, degree of integrity and trust, right? And, and our belief is that there's no reason you shouldn't trust in a food company. Uh, it is in the, the food company's best interest to really do a lot of the work for you around health. Uh, and if you do that, it's ultimately, it's in the best interest of that company because consumers will reward that company. Um, so we think it's a, we think it's a failed philosophy to have every single human on the planet earth become a PhD in nutrition or in order to eat healthy. That's not going to work. It's the same reason that not all of us know how to encrypt and, and program an iPhone. It's, we, we look for experts to do those kind of things because they're complicated. Those are the underlying theses that we follow with Freshly is that those things are happening in food and they're going to happen at scale. Uh, so I think when our, our investors got aligned on that mission and then they realized that, hey, it's an execution and it's delivering a product in a product in a, in a format that is going to solve the needs that today's consumer really has, which our belief is first and foremost time, right? Time is our greatest asset. It's the number one thing that is pulling from us at all different angles. Uh, second, and maybe a very close second, if not tied with that is health, right? And health is health for us is not only extending the amount of time you have on earth, but it's also extending the quality of that time, right? So, you know, a healthy person is a happier person, feels better, does, does better things. And food is so, 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 so impactful on that. So we believe our format fits those needs that customers has. And, and, and we believe that this is a massive, huge market and our investors believe that as well. And I think what you see in food, which we're excited about is, is food is just fundamentally changing. And over the next 10 years, we're going to see a very different food landscape uh, than we've seen over the past 50 years. So a couple of things that you talked about there that I wanted to hit on, um, you talked about like that trust, right? Building that trust. And you talked about a little bit about when you were starting the company, it was a lot of it was when it was first starting was people literally seeing the results that you were experiencing uh, yourself changing, transforming your health and physique. Right. So how about regaining that trust? Right. So now that freshly start, well, it, during your expansion years, you're now going, of course, people to selling the markets that have never met you. They don't know what these th- meals do. And 
you're, you're exactly right. The food industry is riddled with distrust, right? Like I'm not going to name these television dinner companies, but like a lot of prepared meals that you see in the grocery store are like you said, suggested, they're basically like chemical concoctions that who knows what they are. Right. Because, and then we also have a lot of food companies that will boast about health, nutrition, fresh, like those are some buzzwords they used to sell. So how did you cross a chasm, I guess, to say like, we're not just brat, we're not just saying it, like we live it. Well, I mean, a few things. So first of all, I think you you gain trust one one inch at a time, right? Trust is very hard and you can lose trust extremely quickly. So you hold on to that. I think what you've seen in these food companies and they will acknowledge themselves is it's very hard to win back the trust of consumers. Um, so when you lose that, it's very hard. So I think we, it's, it's why we're customer obsessed. It's why we're focused on the customer, um, meeting and achieving those goals for our customers. For us, it's transparency. I think we have a, we have a tremendous opportunity as a direct to consumer business is we can have a lot of conversations with our customers. Uh, we encourage our customers to reach out to us. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I don't know the last time I, I contacted customer service at Coke, Pepsi, at General no, Mills. You know, we have 24-7 customer service. We have chat, phone, email, uh, in-app chat. Um, we encourage people to have a conversation with us. Let us know where we're getting something right or getting, getting something wrong. And we don't bat a thousand. Um, so we, we're very transparent on, on the products where, you know, all of our labels are clean label. Um, all of our, you know, our, our philosophies are all listed. Um, and a customer can have a conversation with us. They literally can contact us 24-7. Uh, we have JD power level, you know, customer service. So you're, we're going to respond to chat in 15 seconds. Uh, we're going to respond to a phone call in five rings and we're going to respond to an email in 15 minutes. That's 24 seven. So you can test us on that and we, we will, we take that very serious. So we're constantly looking for user feedback because that's how we get better. Um, and that builds that trust with the consumer because again, we don't get everything right. We are, we are fallible. We do. So we want to know when we get something wrong and that, you know, it can be as small as not getting delivery to you on time. Um, and, and we want to get better every single day. And I think that's, that's how we treat, um, we, we treat, our fiduciary responsibility to the consumer is, is really, it is that it is a relationship. Um, we believe this is a long-term relationship with our customer and we want to be someone they can trust on and, and build that. Um, and, and for us to get better is to have that conversation constantly. For the big food guys, I think, as I said, it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of effort on that. I think it's great for us because we're, we, we don't, we're not starting off with that baggage. So we're able to start that conversation from fresh. Was that a goal of yours from the very beginning to invest that level of, I guess, resource into building the, like you, you mentioned before, the, the contact centers, the support vehicles, the ability for customers to interact with freshly the business. Did you know that as something like a core principle that you wanted to deploy to your business? Or was that something that someone taught you? Because when we started the company, we, we, we did everything bootstrapped. So me and my co-founder were our first customer service agents, right? And we weren't able to invest in technology and these different things. So literally we gave out our cell phones to our customers <laughs> for the first year and a half. But, and don't get me wrong, hearing from hearing negative things from customers is tough, right? It hurts, especially when you're, when you're putting all your effort into a business and, and, and there's negative feedback. However, what we realized very quickly is it's what made us get better. And because we were hearing that feedback constantly and getting that feedback and engaging with customers real time, uh, we were able to improve a lot. But what we also saw is that when you, when you did a really good job at customer service, customers are really understanding. 
if they believe in you and they trust in you, they will give you the benefit of the doubt. They will work with you. Um, and by having that conversation, you actually create a strong relationship with that customer. So we saw that early. And I think when we saw that again, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't, say that we built a business plan and said, this was the thing we were putting all of our money into we kind of stumbled our way into it. And we stumbled our way into it because we weren't able to invest in these massive technologies and things from the early days. Now we have a lot more of that, which helps out our customers even more. But at the early days it was, it was, you know, getting phone calls and, and Carter and I always laugh, but it was getting phone calls at 12 o'clock at night. It was getting phone calls at four in the morning. And it, because people didn't know, they didn't know it was going directly to our cell phones. And, <laughs> you know, we had a guilt that we picked up, we picked up almost all the time. So uh, we always joked that it was one of the best things in our life when our phones stop, when our phones stopped being the uh, customer service hotline. Um, and, and we didn't have to, you know, pick up every single call. It was a, it was a great moment, but that's how we learned that. Do you have any anecdotal stories of just a hard lesson you learned from a customer that ultimately like, you know, impacted the trajectory of the business? Yeah, I think, I mean, what we realized with our customers is, is, and I think this is, you know, I grew up in a hospitality nature as well. So I grew up in, in both restaurants and hotels. So, you know, it, it really is the customer's never wrong. And I think when we realize that is it doesn't matter, you know, we work with a lot of partners, whether that's FedEx, whether that's, uh, you know, different box providers and people who will help us provide our product uh, to our customers. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, we are that, we are that point person for our customers. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it was FedEx who didn't make the delivery, it's our fault. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing to, to, to hear because you, you want to, you know, human nature, is, oh, it's not us. It's FedEx. It's the weather. It's this. Um, and what we realize is there is no, no, it's our fault. The customer is expecting us to deliver the box. We chose FedEx. We chose how to use FedEx. We chose how we were going to communicate to that platform. Now we're never going to bat a thousand. That's just reality. There will be deliveries that don't get shown up, but we take accountability for all those things. And we build systems and processes to get better at that accountability. So I think that's one of the things that we learned in this company is, is the customer's never wrong and it's always our fault. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's our fault, uh, directionally and, and we actually did the action or if it was one of our partners, it always is our fault and we need to always take that mindset. Uh, and that's helped us. Um, that's helped us as a company really be accountable to deliver a great product with our customer. And so that's, that's one of those things. And we've heard these things all over the, t you know, many times that's, that's hard, but it gets, it makes us strong. I love it. I mean, one of the things that I think about, you know, talking to different operators such as yourself that are at this level is just, how impactful that really is where, you know, if something goes wrong, the cost of fixing it is actually, it becomes nominal over time, right? Yes. Upfront, it sucks. Like for example, if you had to replace a meal, right? You basically just guaranteed a loss, right? But to do it means you get a customer for life and maybe that customer doesn't have that many returns. So that's a, that's a big investment. Tough to stomach at first though. So yeah, I'm, I'm, and I think, I, mean, <laughs> I think great, great direct consumer companies look at customer service uh, as a marketing tool, not as an expense item. So old technologies used to look at customer service or old companies used to look at customer service as an expense item, right? So yeah. And how do you get like, you know, how do you get most and, 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 you know, Zappos certainly started this culture uh, and, and, and we come on, you know, on their shoulders, but it's, it's this idea of, Hey, customer service is your best, best tool to engage your customer. It's a really amazing marketing tool. And as you said, it's like the little things go a long way with customers. Customers appreciate when people solve problems for them and go over and above. And I think those are the, those are the things that you said, they, they have a, a huge compounding effect on the overall business uh, and the success that that customer, and if a customer, you know, we feel our, our product solves a huge need for a customer and we feel that we have a tremendous opportunity to be with our customers for a really long time. As long as our customers know that 
we will do everything in our power to get it right. And when we don't get it right, we will make it right. Um, and I think that's, that's something everyone wants to see in a, in a world-class brand is that, um, you know, I think we, we want customer companies to get things right. We understand that they're not going to get everything right, but when they don't get it right, we want to, we want to make sure that they make it right. Um, and that's what we work to do. So one of the things I was reading off of your website, it's like, as you know, so this is very right now, freshly, you know, everything you've described, very customer centric, great meals, great. But you added like even, I think two more things on top of your brand that, you know, make it, I would say challenging to operate, but ultimately good for the customer. I want to kind of talk about the logistics of that. Uh, one of the things is your foods, you don't use any type of artificial or chemical preservatives and your meals only have a refrigerated shelf life of about three to five days. So talk about the constraints of that because, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of, we just talked about the customer side, like if the shipping is delayed, right? It might come to be spoiled. Like there's a, there's a lot of challenges there. Well, how did you, I guess, tackle those? And I want to hear how you, how you came about like the building the procedures that were going to enable that to happen. So a lot. So, so we've done some, we've done a lot of innovation and tests around natural preservatives. So those would be like citrus and vinegar and things like that. So we've actually extended the shelf life um, on most of our products now to where you have seven days of shelf life. That's great. Um, and, but, but what we really, so the, our big thesis was, and if, if you think about it is the, the grocery network was built in 1950 and kind of coupled together and it, it built on kind of this like system. So if you think the way you used to buy groceries is your, your, your grandparents used to buy groceries very frequently, right? Especially around produce and, and vegetables. Cause those things didn't have preservatives and, and they didn't stay that long. Right. So you used to buy food all the time. And then as we went out to kind of like in the, late 60s, 70s, we went out to, we went out to suburban areas. Well, the, those grocery stores started not being the corner grocery store, but it started being the, the, the neighborhood grocery store, right? Which meant that your family was going to the grocery store once a week, right? So when you looked at that, so then you, then you said, okay, well now you need to make those products last longer. So that's when preservatives and additives were first introduced. Um, and then now you got these massive, um, you know, companies and big behemoths and these companies have huge manufacturing. And, and so now they were saying, okay, well, we need 45, we need 90 days shelf life. We need 120 days shelf life. Right. So <laughs> what they started doing is putting a bunch of preservatives in these. Now they, you know, in, in some degree, their defense, they didn't know what they were putting in these products. And, it, and at the time it seemed magical and everyone went along with it. And that became our ecosystem. Fast forward to, you know, 1970 and whole foods starts out saying, Hey, this is a, this is a problem. And, and they took a grass grassroots movement and became the whole foods of today, but they started with, with, you know, one store in Austin, Texas. And, and really at the time they were just for hippies. Right. Um, and so, so freshly really started with the thesis is that yes, if you try to build a fresh product in today's ecosystem of a grocery store, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to do for a fresh prepared meal. However, if you do it direct to the consumer, what you can do is cut out this massive inefficient supply chain, uh, which on average takes from a manufacturer, it takes anywhere from 21 to 28 days to get that product on the shelf. So when you think about produce, when you think about those things, those actually have a fair amount of shelf life. They're just not on your shelves. They're in <laughs> grocer's shelves. They're in a truck shelf. They're in a warehouse shelf, right? So there are, they've got a lot of shelf life. That just is getting eaten up inside of a, a, a you know, inefficient supply chain, right? Um, um, now those supply chains are, are amazing and have done a lot, but it's just, they've got a lot of volume. So what we said is what if we cut out the middleman? What if we cut out all of that DC? What if we handle the whole thing? So we can literally produce a, a meal um, from raw ingredients, from those fresh, all natural raw ingredients, um, take those, produce those, cook those, package those and ship those directly to your house, uh, all within a 24 hour cycle, 24, 36 hour cycle where we can do that entire process. Right. And then, 
ship those to you overnight. And then, so now you get, when we started, it was three to five day shelf life on your, on your shelf. Um, now we're seven day shelf life. So now you have one week of shelf life, um, which is all natural. And again, if you go to a grocery store and you look at like even their fresh products, you know, those products on average are 14 day shelf life. By the time you buy them, you get one to two day shelf life because it's been sitting in the store. So we really reinvented the entire way we think about the supply chain on the, under this direct consumer uh, model, which required us to do these massive changes in how we think about production at large scale. And that's been our secret sauce is that's really, you know, why we are absolutely the industry leader. We're, you know, we're shipping almost a million meals a week right now, which is, you know, more than 20 X bigger than our nearest competitor because we do this so efficiently at scale um, with fresh product. And, and it's, you know, extremely valuable for our customers. Yeah, let's talk about Freshly where it is today because I feel, um, yeah, I'm pretty certain on Monday Night Football, I saw your commercial. Is that right? You did, yes. <laughs> okay, I know that that's not cheap. See, I, I, live on, <laughs> I live on the East Coast, so and I go to bed at like nine o'clock, so Monday Night Football is just kicking off, so I haven't I haven't seen those ads yet, but uh, I'm deep asleep at that point. All right, so I saw, I, I saw it. I was like, oh, man, this is kind of quite interesting. Mike's going to be on the show this week. Talk to me about this. How big is Freshly today? I mean, obviously... Uh, an advertising spot on Monday Night Football is not inexpensive. So you're, you, you just kind of mentioned a million meals a week. What does that mean? Like how big is Freshly now? How many employees do you have? How many facilities are you operating now? Yeah, so this year, this year alone we'll do, you know, over almost 40 million meals. Um, you know, we're 15,000 and 1,500 employees. We started this company five years ago with 15. Um, so, you know, we've grown massively. We've got facilities all throughout the country. Um, you know, we're shipping literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uh, boxes to consumers a week. We've hit over a million total customers. It's been an insane journey. We started off in Tucson, Arizona, a small, you know, the second largest town in, in Arizona, which is not a big state to begin with. And, and you know, we've, we've grown and scaled and we now service all 48 states in, in the continental United States. We have a great team of world-class professionals who are doing everything from, you know, coding and we've written over 4 million lines of code. Uh, we run all of our own facilities. So we're fully vertically integrated. Um, and all the support teams and different, uh, processes that, that help make this happen every day. It's been, you know, it's really been an honor for me to be part of this organization. I always laugh saying that, thank God I started this company because there's no way I would ever got hired into this company. So, um, <laughs> it's been a, it's been an amazing journey, one fun to watch. And I think, you know, we're most excited if, if, if you look at us first, the standard diet, um, as of this year, we've reduced over 300 million grams of sugar, 300 million grams of sugar that we've reduced from the American diet. When you look at the standard American diet, um, those, and, and next year, as we go out, it's going to be closer to 500 million uh, grams of sugar just next year that we're reducing from the American diet. Right. Um, and, and, and the great thing for us is it doesn't have to feel like a sacrifice. We're doing the work for you. And, and if you reduce this from the things you're, you would be eating the Whoppers, the Big Macs, those things that, you know, really make up a large portion of American diets, especially the convenient portion of American diets. When you, when you, when you tend to connect the word convenient and food, it tends to be very, very, very unhealthy. Uh, we don't think it needs to be that. 
Um, and again, my thing has always been is like, you know, I think I'm a case study of one with Freshly is that if you would have left it up to me to become healthy, I would have failed, right? Um, thank God I was able to surround myself with uh, great chefs and great nutritionists who just did the work for me. And then what I was really good at is eating the food. That's where I accomplished <laughs> I, I scaled that. So I thought, what a great system if you could just take the user out. And if the user only has to do what they're really good at, what we're all good at is eating, and, and all the other heavy work is done for them, then that sounds to me like an efficient system where we can start getting our heads around and start solving some of these epidemic crises that we're going to face here. We are facing, and we're, these these are going to get much worse if we don't solve these in a different format than the way we've been solving, which is around obesity and, and you know, conditions that are related to poor, poor diet. And I think it's an amazing time in the world where uh, your leading cause of death uh, in America is going to be because of yourself. It's, 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 a, it's a long form of suicide that we commit every day. Um, and we're all doing it. And, and it's a system that's broken. And we've really got to think about, hey, how do we, how do we spin the wheels here and change this system? Because if we keep doing the same way, it's, it's probably not going to end well for any of us. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I just watched some show, like a, a show about pharmaceutical pricing and the fact that, you know, that's, that's become our answer is like, oh, you should stop eating pizza. Nah, I'd rather just take this statin on for the rest of my life to control my blood pressure. It seems, you know, it's just, it's a terrible decision that many people are making. I want to hit on something that you were kind of talking about. Like you mentioned, Hey, thank goodness I started the company because I couldn't get a job in it. <laughs> How about the leadership and knowledge mentorship? Who taught you? Certainly someone had to help you learn how to run and operate a company of this size and scale. Who's been along the way helping you? Yeah, I mean, so so I think, you know, first of all, as I look at mentors, it certainly it starts with my parents. You know, I, uh, you know, my parents were the first operators I ever watched. Um, you know, I think so much of life and success is about work ethic. And I think that's that's the number one thing I'd tell any founder starter is is it is work. There is nothing that will out that, that will outdo work. Um, you can, you know intelligence only takes you so far work 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 so i think my the first the first people i look at as 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 my mentors uh are my parents and i think specifically to freshly as we started i think carter and i got really lucky with some people who early investors in freshly who who really gave us their time uh energy and effort and i think you know that starts with uh you know, one of our first institutional investors, a guy named Andrew Black and Brand Project. And, and Andrew, you know, really taught us. Andrew was the ex-CEO of Virgin Mobile Canada and and had come up through uh, Dr. Pepper Schweppes and Nike and, and really just, you know, he'd been part of amazing world-class organizations. And I think he 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 held us accountable and held us to that level, and but also taught us a lot about how those world-class organizations ran, worked, operated. Um, and that was that was amazing. I think, you know, Andrew was great and, and at times often very challenging because he held us to the standards of those companies. And obviously as a startup, small company, it's hard to be held up to the level of, of, of quality and consistency with, uh, you know, Virgin Mobile, but that's where we got that obsession with customer service was, was from Andrew's experience at Virgin Mobile and they're being relentlessly focused on JD power level customer service. Then we had, uh, our next board member who joined us in letter series A was Bob Davis at Highland Capital Partners. And, and Bob is a uh, founder and CEO of Lycos, um, which was one of the fastest growing internet companies, uh, massive, huge acquisitions. So you know, Bob was a, a true operator and I, I have always appreciated operators. So I always like and get a lot of advice from people who are, who are CEOs and have done this job because it's a difficult job and it's a difficult one uh, to explain unless you've done it. And, and I think there's a, a high degree of, of sympathy, uh, but also expectation and understanding that an operator comes to a mentor different than, than a non-operator. And, and Bob was a, a quintessential hard driving operator. 
and you know Bob, a lot like Andrew, held us to high, very high standards. Uh, did not let us use excuses as uh, crutches, um, and really held us accountable to to hitting and meeting great things. So I think you know part of the challenge of, of of wanting to be great, if you think about you know sports is a is a is a great analogy, is you know the best athletes, the best people that we love had had the best coaches, and those coaches weren't the nicest coaches. They weren't the coaches that made you feel good. They were often the coaches that were pretty hard on you and pretty, pretty critical and, and told you when they didn't think you were doing a good job and it made you work extra hard. And that made the best out of your Michael Jordan's, your you know, Vince Lombardi's, your, you know, your, 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 you know, those, 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 that, and that's what I look for at least as, in, as mentors and mine is, you know, I'm not looking for the easy road. I'm not looking for someone to uh, always pat my back. Uh, sometimes you want that pat on the back, but a lot of times you need that, you know, that punch in the gut. And, and so that's the, you know, I've been really fortunate. Carter and I've been really fortunate to, uh, you know, and I, I'd say Carter would, would also say his parents and their work ethic, but we had, we had great, um, you know, great people inside of this company who really, who gave us a lot, uh, a lot of time and energy. And that really is what it takes. Yeah. What about, tell me about one of those punches in the gut that you took. Well, what was something that maybe you guys just weren't ready to hear or didn't want to hear, but ultimately when you heard it and you, you, course corrected it ultimately played a huge impact on the success of freshly yeah i think i think you know our you know we've had different different moments i think some of those are small punches when you send an email and the emails has misspelling and we're getting you know and and bombarded and well you know and your your immediate reaction again as a human is to make an excuse right oh well it's this is like there's no excuses like this this can't happen from the standpoint of, of challenging us as, as, as we took business and, you know, what was the right growth? What was the quality of growth? When, when quality of the product slipped, it, it, there was a lot of focus on, are you thinking about this business the right way? And I think, you know, I'd say with, with, with them is, is a lot of things where they, you know, for lack of, uh, you know, better, they'd call it out, call us out on our BS. So, you know, sometimes you can get a <laughs> feedback loop inside of a company and, and, and feel like you're doing the right thing and think you're doing the right thing. And, you know, an outsider has a good, perspective of saying, no, that's, you guys are thinking about the, you know, I don't know if you're thinking about this, right. Um, so I've had, I've had many of those. Um, I think, you know, what my board has done a great job is they've never tried to, and those mentors. And I think this is the balancing line is they'd never try to run the company. They understood that it was, it was our company to run that, that we're going to have to make our decisions and choices, but they were, they would give us candid feedback and they'd give us candid points of view and opinions. And, and we didn't always agree with those. And we also didn't always listen with them. And they also weren't always right. But I'd say more often than not, collectively together, we arrived at the right decision. Um, we arrived at the right process. It wasn't always easy getting there, but but those are the things. And that's what you want in a great team. And I think, you know, my advice and, and any entrepreneur here is that, you know, investors is, is the money is the easy thing. That, but that hits your bank account and then that, that, that's the same from whoever you get. It's, it's really the partnership. And when you take investors is you gotta, you gotta believe that you're going to get value in those investors. You have to be willing to listen to them. You have to want, um, otherwise I would advise if you, if you don't need to, don't take their money because you know, it's, it's really about a partnership. It is about a marriage. It's about staying together and listening to each other and, and getting the best out of, out of each other. And I think that's, that's been one thing that we've been really successful is, is, is every time we brought in a new investor, we brought uh, a new great thinker to the table, someone that collectively and, and, you know, whether it started as me and Carter and then collectively grew as our board, someone that the entire board was excited to have around the table and to listen to. And, and that's the key. And I think as you grow businesses is that you want to get smarter people around the table and you have to be willing and want to listen to them and their point of view and their perspective. And that's always been important for us. I'm assuming the HQ is now in New York. Is that accurate? HQ, yes. HQ is in New York. We still have a secondary yeah. HQ in Phoenix. So we moved from Tucson to Phoenix. That was pretty quick. That was after yeah. about four months. Uh, we were in Phoenix during our series A. 
we'd met Bob Davis and, and it was his Bob's uh, Highland Capitals that at the time they have offices now multiple, but they're the office that we were meeting with was out of Boston. Um, and Bob said, look, I love the company and I, I I'm a, you know, I don't want to invest either way, but I think if you were in New York, I could do a lot more for you. And he asked what are the things that, you know, he, he wanted it, what we wanted to do in the big initiatives and it was build a tech and marketing team and those things. And he said, look, I think we can do it wherever we, wherever you guys want to do it, but I think we could do it better, faster, quicker in, in, in New York. Cause I have a massive network and a lot of people there. And, um, you know, me and my founder and, and at the time, another board member, Andrew Black, we talked it through and, um, you know, Andrew said, Hey, it's up to you guys and what you guys want to do. And I talked to Carter and I lived in New York before. So it's pretty easy for me. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I think it's the right call. Um, I think if we want to build this business to the scale, we want to build this business getting out of Phoenix at that time for us. And the ecosystems change a little as you look at uh, VC investing, but at that time it was very concentrated in New York and San Francisco. Uh, we felt that this was the right move. And, uh, you know, to Carter's Testament, he visited New York once when he was 10 years old and he sighted unseen. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll, I'm in. Um, um, and uh, we picked up and moved out here and, and, you know, we were, we were traveling a lot cause we still had a production facility in, in, in Phoenix. And to this day we are spent a ton of time and we have, you know, over 500 employees in Phoenix. So we still have a massive presence in Phoenix and there's secondary headquarters there, but yeah, our, our principal headquarters is now in New York. Were you married at the time that you made this decision or cause you, you now have a family, but uh, I was not. So Carter and I also were lucky enough at that stage. And that was kind of what Andrew said. He's just like, why not? You guys are single. You're not like, you know, so it, it definitely made it easy for us. That's not a, that's not a move that a lot of people could do. And, and we also didn't have a lot of the corporate infrastructure talent we were moving. So we ended up only moving three people out to New York. So pretty much everyone that we had in Phoenix stayed in Phoenix and continued to operate there. And we hired new. So it wasn't like we were moving in the entire company. It was, it was us uprooting just three of us. And at the time we were all single and that two of us now are married with kids that made that move. So it's unlikely we're going to make that move again. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get, once you get the roots down, it's, it's, it's tough. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things we always like to do with our guests is we also want to learn about you a little bit uh, personally, not, not the do personal, but some of your hobbies and interests, but love to hear, are you an avid reader? Do you watch TV shows? Like what do you do when you're not thinking about Freshly? Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give people a, 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 a not so fun fact, but as a, as a founder starter, you spend a lot of your time. Uh, I spend a lot of my time thinking about Freshly. Even when I'm not thinking about Freshly, I'm thinking about Freshly. So, so I spend a lot of time. I don't have a ton of hobbies. I, um, but what I do, I'm, I'm actually, I, you know, I grew up with a pretty substantial learning disability. So I was a very, very, and I still am to this day, a very slow reader. Um, but I love acquiring knowledge. So um, I feel unbelievably lucky to be at this time in where podcasts and audiobooks are available to me. So I listen to probably two audiobooks a week. I'm a pretty avid um, audiobook listener, as, as your listeners can tell by the, the rate that I speak. I listen to audiobooks at 3x, so I, I <laughs> that's fast very quickly, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm, you know, it is it's so cool. I think we live in an era that's so fun to be able to hear. It doesn't matter what you're in, um, whatever area and interest you're in, you get the access for free to listen to some of the world's greatest people talk every single week on, on different things. So it's, uh, you know, I'm an avid listener to podcasts and, and those of you who haven't done the podcast as, as we're obviously on a podcast, I assume most people listening to this are big podcasts, but it is the greatest wealth of knowledge um, short of the internet that you can tap into. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal how much I learn every day from listening to podcasts. Hey, fun fact about podcasts. Well, at least that we know of um, is that, podcasts have an unbelievable long lifespan, meaning like, so this podcast or 
podcasts that we've done over a year ago, Mike, still get like 20, 30, 40, 50 listens a day. So these are probably people just finding us for the first time, you know, hearing stuff from a year ago, which I mean, I don't think our company blogs work like that. You know what I mean? Like people don't uh, look back a, a year. <laughs> and, it's me, and as you get, as it's getting better, as, as, as it's getting better on indexing and following and stuff is it's, it truly is amazing that you can listen to someone on one podcast, really like them and want to listen more and then search them and, 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 and be able to hear some amazing, I mean, I've, I've, I'm a big Tim Ferriss. I've followed Tim Ferriss for a very long time. Um, and some of his guests is, you know, as, as many of you who followed Tim know that have spun out doing their own stuff and, and, and you can follow him on It's, it's just, for me, it's been a phenomenal, uh, ability to learn. Uh, and you know, you can take moments, especially like in New York where I'm on the subway and I'm learning. And, and I think those are the opportunities that I encourage, you know, especially founders to do is, is, is there's a lot of information out there. Uh, I even look at the difference from when I started, um, Freshly to today, how much information that we had to like struggle to find is now just kind of readily available. And a lot of it is, is soundbite. So it's, it's not that, you know, that you're going to listen to this podcast and agree with everything I say, but there may be one tidbit, one factoid, one thing that you agree with. And those things are, are, are they're, they're, I always say it's, it's gold nuggets. And, and when you're, you know, when you're panning for gold, it's it, it, all you need is the one nugget to make the entire day worthwhile. Right. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I think about these things. It's an area and opportunity to, to just take little things that are going to work for you in your life and, and try to implement them. So of the audiobooks you, you, you consumed any that you recommend? Enlightenment Now, I think is probably one of the best books written. That's a Steven Pinker book. That's I've probably listened to and read that a few a few times. What's um, it about? Uh, Enlightenment Now is just kind of about uh, how I think there's so much of the the media, certainly if the news and things like that is is done on kind of a negative cycle about. Uh, you know, how we're not in a great spot in the world, uh, in time and these things. And it's, it's really on how this is absolutely the greatest time to be alive, uh, full stop. And it's very, it's very, um, data driven. So it's a very data, but it's, it's, it's not a dry book. It's very data driven on how many great things are happening in the world. Um, certainly it's, it's an optimistic point of view on the things we need to fix. And, and there are some things we certainly need to fix, but it's a, it's a very uplifting, um, book on the realities of, of how lucky we are to be alive at this point, especially be alive, uh, you know, for, for, for those of us in, in the United States with the freedoms and, and the opportunities were, uh, that are made available to us. I think in that he, he kind of crafts this idea and this, that, that we're lucky and, and it's the, been our forefathers and people who've come before us that have put us in this amazing world. And it's up to us to make sure that we continue uh, to, to make this an amazing place. But it's a very uplifting book, I think, on, on the state of the, the world we're in today. I think you, you get to kind of view, view the glass half full or half empty. I think, unfortunately, so much of the noise today is, is a view of that the glass is half full. I'm, I'm an internal optimist. Uh, I think we, we have so many opportunities and we're going to do amazing things over the next 10, 20 years as a society. So uh, that's a great book for that. Stephen Peaker does a much better job uh, articulating uh, the vision uh, than I do. So I, I encourage people to listen to that. But it's Enlightenment Now written by Stephen Pinker. All right. Well, I'm going to check it out. I already agree with the ethos of what that book's about. It's a great book. I, I encourage those of you uh, who don't have an Audible. I, I don't get paid for this. This is not a paid, uh, <laughs> but Audible is an amazing resource. It's really, really cool. Um, you can turn every little waiting period into an opportunity to get smarter or just enjoy some great books. How about sports? Are you in a big sports fan? You kind of dropped sports a couple times. You know, I love sports. Um, I unfortunately have 
I don't watch that many games anymore. Um, I, uh, again, speaking of podcasts, I listen to part of the interruption, uh, every single day. Uh, yep. it's with the way I get my sports. I listen to it on a podcast. It's amazing. Uh, so my Michael Wilbon and, and Tony Kornheiser give me all my sports opinions from here on, but, uh, <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a big sports fan. I just don't get to watch it as much as I, I used to. Well, you're the CEO and a family man now. So family certainly takes up a lot of time. I know that. And then, uh, of course the business. Exactly. So. It's got to be done. Mike, did you have fun on the show today? I had a great time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hey, thank you. Uh, appreciate having me on. Uh, everyone check us out at freshly.com. There you go. Good luck. All the best. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.